Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our awesome co-hosts, Dr. Sajin Bakta and Dr. Patil Armenian. Hi, everyone. Hello. And today we have a COVID update. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of American's family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. Sajin, why don't you kick us off with the epidemiology? Tell us about COVID. So the latest numbers, these are from March 6th. There have been over 447 million cases worldwide with over 6 million deaths. In the U.S., we're over 79 million cases with 959,000 deaths. In California, we're over 9 million cases with 86,000 deaths. And in Fresno County, we've had over 227,000 cases with 2,600 deaths. So we have a million people in Fresno County. Some of these are reinfection cases, but that means we've had one case for every four people. Um, This is why a mortality rate of even 1% to 2% is pretty scary. Now, in terms of vaccinations, only China and India have more fully vaccinated people than the U.S., which in the U.S., we're about 216 million people fully vaccinated. Uh, But this only translates to about 65% of the country's population. Some notable countries with the highest vaccination rates, um, the UAE has vaccinated 97% of their population. Portugal is at 91%. Canada is at 82%. And Australia and New Zealand are at 80%. Uh, They also have a list on the Johns Hopkins website of some of the countries with the lowest vaccination. Unfortunately, the African continent is fairly low in terms of their overall vaccination rate. The most prosperous African country, South Africa, only has a 29% vaccination rate with most of the rest of the continent even below that. So this just highlights some of the struggles we will continue to have in you know, coming out of this pandemic is really achieving vaccination for the entire world to prevent mutations and, and further complications. Patil, why don't you just give everybody a brief review on the pathophys of COVID? So I know we've heard it a bunch, but just a quick reminder before we jump into yeah, the rest. Yeah, I think we haven't really done pathophysiology since the very beginning of this. So as a reminder, the virus attaches to the ACE2 receptor via the spike protein Uh, to enter the host cell. And these are found on many types of cells, including lungs, intestines, kidney, heart, blood vessels. And of course, these are where we see the common symptoms and sites of infection. Now, the incubation period is typically four to five days, but it does vary by variant. So for Omicron, we were seeing closer to a three-day incubation rate. And uh, 98% of people will develop symptoms within 12 days of exposure. Now, Infectivity or the reproductive number is the number of cases arising from one individual. So with the original virus, that number was five. So it meant one person would infect five other people. Um, and with infection control measures, aka the lockdown in from March to April of 2020, this actually dropped down to 1.5. 
So that initial lockdown actually worked. Now with the Delta variant, that infectivity number went to seven and with Omicron, it was 10. So it just kind of shows you how, how infectious the variants have been. Of course, you know, we're also very interested in hospitalization rates and death rates. With the initial strain, which was alpha, um, that was the initial like really virulent strain and the mortality was one to 2%. Delta was the first widespread variant. It showed double mortality for unvaccinated individuals. Um, and what we saw that was the two-dose vaccination was actually over 90% effective for preventing mortality or ICU admission for that Delta variant. Now, moving on to Omicron, initially, we're seeing so much increased transmissibility. There was a lot of fear about this variant, um, and we were seeing decreased effectiveness of the vaccine. However, over time, we've seen that the incidence of hospitalization is and severe disease is actually lower than the Delta strain. Early data from UK shows that Omicron has an observed to expected case ratio of about 0.3 to 0.5 for hospitalization. That's a really low hospitalization rate, but it causes, but we're seeing more reinfections than Delta. Now, if you have the two vaccine doses plus the booster, then there's a 50 to 60% uh, risk reduction for actually symptomatic disease. So there is some benefit to receiving the booster dose of the vaccine. Sanjan, why don't you lead us off about vaccinations against variants? Yeah, this has been a little bit of a struggle to understand because there's so much data and so much fear. There's a difference between antibody quantification, effectiveness, infection rates, and then the numbers you really care about, which are hospitalization and severe disease and death. Um, So the largest study was out of Kaiser Southern California. They evaluated 3.4 million patients. They all received the Pfizer vaccine, and they did see that the efficacy waned from 90% at one month to 50% at five months. And against Delta, it went from 93% to 67% at five months. However, when you dig through the data, the efficacy against severe illness and hospitalization was still 90% at five months. So it's a little difficult to interpret the data. You have to dig through it a little bit. There is some data from the CDC from 25 states between October to December 2021, which showed significantly different rates of total cases and mortality rates comparing unvaccinated to vaccinated without the booster and then vaccinated with the booster. So just in terms of cases, people who are vaccinated with the booster, there were 25 cases per 100,000. Vaccinated without a booster, 87 cases per 100,000. And unvaccinated, 347 per 100,000. And similar trends were noted for the mortality rates as well. For vaccinated with the booster, 0.1 per 100,000. Vaccinated without a booster, 0.6 per 100,000 and unvaccinated 7.8 per 100,000. As you can see, there still is a significant difference in the unvaccinated versus the vaccinated with the booster population. And the biggest gains in protection are among people who are aged greater than 65, followed by 50 to 64, and then compared to the 18 to 49 year old age range. Let's talk about some vaccine side effects. I know we have a lot of vaccine hesitancy um, in a lot of people listening. Um, So some of the side effects are the headache, you know, 20 to 30% of the people will stay after the vaccine, fatigue, 15%, dizziness and fevers and chills around the 20% range. 
Anaphylaxis is a concern, but um, for Pfizer, it's only 4.7 cases per million vaccines given. And for Moderna, it was 2.5 cases per million vaccines given. So not a lot of anaphylaxis happening. Myocarditis is another risk um, with the vaccine. So most are case reports of young males aged 12 to 29 that develop myocarditis associated with the mRNA vaccines, which just a reminder are the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. Reportedly, the symptoms develop within seven days of receiving the second vaccine dose. Now, the Kaiser study found a rate of 5.8 cases per million people, which is uh, 250 to 300 times lower than the incidence of myocarditis associated with COVID-19 infection itself. Um, All these cases occurred age 20 to 32, and none required an ICU stay. There are case reports of death thought to be secondary to vaccine-induced myocarditis. However, all the cases that I found were in patients who were already severely immunocompromised, like super elderly, history of severe heart failure, active cancer receiving chemo, those kind of patients. So the summary on myocarditis is that it is a slight risk, but you have more risk of getting myocarditis with COVID infection itself. Patia, why don't you tell us about blood clotting? Um, Now, there is thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome um, or vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia associated with some adenovirus vector vaccines. Let's interrupt really quick just for everyone listening. Remember, thrombosis is blood clotting and thrombocytopenia is low platelets. Yes. And these actually have not really been seen with the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. Um, It's the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccines that have been noticed Um, But with Johnson & Johnson, three cases of clotting per 1 million doses. And with the AstraZeneca, seven cases per 1 million doses. And what they saw with the AstraZeneca cohort was that young women, especially those pregnant or taking oral contraceptives, were at maybe a little bit of a higher risk. But again, when you think about the millions of doses being given out, these are exceedingly low numbers. Again, this has not been an association with the mRNA vaccines, which are the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Fadjo, when tell us about pregnant women. Yes. Initially, there was a lot of hesitancy about getting infection or getting the vaccines during pregnancy. We're getting a lot more data now. The data for pregnant women who do get infected with COVID-19 are pretty grim, unfortunately. They're at increased risk for severe disease from COVID infection in general compared to non-pregnant women. There are higher rates of ICU admission, higher rates of mortality, prolonged hospitalization, and supplemental oxygen requirements. Additionally, there's also harm for the fetus. There are higher rates of pregnancy complications such as preterm labor, preterm delivery, even increases in stillbirth compared to those without the disease. So of course the recommendation is to get vaccinated. Now we have tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of pregnant women who've received the vaccine during pregnancy. No observed increases in miscarriage or small for gestational age babies or preeclampsia or gestational diabetes or preterm birth or any complications that we've been looking for. It's also safe to breastfeed after being vaccinated. COVID antibodies have been seen passed from mother to child through the breast milk without noted adverse effects. Uh, Just to be clear, most of the vaccine doses were given in the second and third trimester. So we still need to study a little bit about the first trimester, but overall, we haven't seen a lot of complications from the vaccine and getting the infection while you're pregnant seems to be uh, pretty terrible. Let's jump to what we all really are want to hear about are the therapeutics. You know, there's a lot of stuff on the market now. We talked about these pills. So um, Sajid, we're hoping you can break it down for us. Uh, what, what's the therapeutics options now that COVID has been with us for the past two years? Sure. The mainstay, of course, has been supplemental oxygen. 
since the initial study came out of the UK uh, winter of last year now, um, we've been using steroids. Um, so if you require supplemental oxygen, steroids decrease mortality by 8%. And the go-to for us in the hospital has been dexamethasone. And just as a reminder, if you're not requiring supplemental oxygen, dexamethasone actually increases your odds of being hospitalized. So it's actually detrimental to you to get a course of steroids if you're not requiring oxygen. The next medication that we were using is an IV antiviral medication called remdesivir, and this inhibits viral RNA polymerase. This is kind of the first widespread IV medication that we had. Initially, we had really high hopes for it. Unfortunately, it does appear to have shorter time to recovery by about three days. However, it does not appear to improve mortality. As of now, it still is standard of care and is recommended by the CDC, but at this point hasn't improved mortality. The next medications that we've been studying are IL-6 antagonists. Uh, these have lots of names, tocilizumab, serolumab, silituximab. These are for severe disease. They target the body's overactive inflammatory pathways that cause overinflammation in the lungs or the blood vessels, often termed a cytokine storm. Uh, these were previously FDA approved for rheumatoid arthritis or giant cell arthritis, which are overactive inflammatory diseases that occurred before COVID. The overall mortality benefit from each trial ranges from about 3 to 20% for patients with severe disease. Uh, the aggregate, when all eight trials are pooled, there appears to be a 13% reduction in 28-day mortality. So these do appear to have some benefit. Another class of medications in the hospital we use are JAK inhibitors. These are baricitinib and ruxolitinib. Again, these are targeting overactive inflammatory pathways. They were previously FDA approved for rheumatoid arthritis and myelofibrosis. And all-cause mortality at 60 days from these medications may be improved by about 5%, although there are still only two small trials at this time. So in the hospital, we typically use either the IL-6 antagonists or the JAK inhibitors. Based on the data we have so far, the IL-6 antagonists at this point are showing a clear mortality benefit. So we're giving a lot of our patients these IV medications. Patio, why don't you tell us about monoclonal antibodies and some outpatient treatments? Yeah, now we actually have some more options for outpatient treatment, monoclonal antibodies being um, one of the main ones. And these are manufactured targeted antibodies that provide immediate immune boosting against the virus. Now, these can be given as a one-time inf infusion as an outpatient um, or for those who are not requiring hospitalization but are at really high risk for disease progression. Initially, they appeared to work really well, but unfortunately, you know, this was mostly being seen with the Delta variant and with the Omicron variant. Our most popular um, monoclonal antibody, Regeneron, actually didn't appear to have the same response. The one of the ones that does still appear to have some retained efficacy against Omicron is Sotrovimab. And in one study, out of almost 600 patients enrolled, 7% in the placebo arm required hospitalization or died versus only 1% in the treatment group. Um, so this is one of the ones that we're using right now. One other option is Evusheld, which has an emergency use authorization for pre-exposure prophylaxis for very high-risk patients. So these are going to be moderate to severe immunocompromised uh, people 
or those who have anaphylaxis against the vaccine. Um, and it's been shown to decrease the risk of symptomatic COVID by 77%. But these are in relatively small studies. Um, importantly, there is no difference if given post-exposure. So Evusheld is really for pre-exposure prophylaxis for very high-risk people. Um, now, there are actually some new oral antiviral agents available for um, treatment for outpatient settings. One of these is called molnupiravir, which is an oral nucleoside analog, which actually stops viral replication. And it's taken as a five-day course within five days of symptom onset. And the relative risk reduction for either hospitalization or death was 30% at 29 days. And so and this was a study done in unvaccinated individuals above age 60. So that's, you know, some improvement in risk. Um, it is a pretty significant teratogen, and what that means is it can cause birth defects. So it should not be used in anyone who is a female of childbearing age um, if they're not on contraception. Um, also, it's not really recommended for anyone under 18 years old because of negative effects on bone and cartilage growth. Um, and then it's also recommended that males should use contraception for three months after being on it because of the teratogenic potential. Last but not least, another outpatient pill medication now is Paxlovid, which is a protease inhibitor combination medication, which also inhibits viral replication. It's also a five-day course within five days of symptom onset for unvaccinated adults above age 60. And it's been shown to reduce risk of hospitalization or death by 88% at 28 days. Again, these were relatively small studies, about 400 patients in each arm. But in the treatment group, again, the hospitalization risk was significantly lower. And in the treatment group, there were no deaths in this study with about 800 patients versus 10 deaths in the placebo arm. Paxlovid does have a lot of drug-drug interactions because it is a protease inhibitor. And so, so that's something that will need to be checked with uh, a patient's, you know, list of medications before starting it. Well, let's jump to talk about long COVID. We hear a lot about this in the news, a lot of people complaining. So remember the term um, long COVID or long haulers. This occurs uh, most commonly in those with severe disease. Um, but there are is a growing number of patients who had relatively mild disease, might not even been hospitalized, and then they report symptoms lasting greater than six months. There is a cohort study from China of almost 2,000 patients that report fatigue and shortness of breath on exertion more than 60% of the time, sleep difficulties more than 20% of the time, and anxiety and depression for more than 20% of the time. And it's very unclear if vaccinations actually improved your rates of long COVID or if there's no effective vaccination if you did get the disease on having long COVID. I think that's all of our worst fears that you get this illness, you get over it, but then you have these long lingering effects that affect your everyday life. Yeah, and we don't really have anything right now that seems to be helping with the long COVID symptoms. I know there are studies ongoing with long haulers to see what we can treat this, but right now um, there's, there's nothing out there that can really treat that long hauler syndrome. So this has been our great review of COVID for where we are at this point. Let's go through some summary take-home points for our group listening. Sajin. My take-home point is get vaccinated and boosted. Definitely shows in the numbers to reduce cases and severe disease. Patil. Mine is just that there are more options for treatment out there now. Um, and so so if you do have COVID, um, we recommend for you to see your doctor early because some of these treatments need to be started within five days of symptom onset. 
So my take-home point is, especially as healthcare providers, for those of you listening who still take care of patients, still be diligent and wear your PPE and wear your mask when you take care of patients because um, COVID is still out there. Um, the Omicron variant is still around in Fresno County for sure. And we want to make sure to protect our vulnerable populations from this disease. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com once again that's podcast at americanambulance.com thanks thank you for joining us on the american ambulance ems podcast produced by american ambulance in fresno california the views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of american ambulance or ucsf fresno the theme song for the show is written and performed by roshan roach the beats were created by young pear and brett schoenwald and I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.